Well, good morning again, everyone. Glad to see you back here this morning and kind of curious as to your thoughts as we look back on this past week. You know, are you satisfied with the work that you were able to get done? And you are, are you able to enter into this day in a restful attitude? Or are you perhaps still thinking about your to-do lists or thinking about what you have to do to, for tomorrow? You know, tomorrow has enough trouble of its own or enough worries of its own. So let's just focus on what we have for today. You know, as we go through this series, I hope that we're putting into practice what we're learning. And as we're talking about rest, one of the things that I heard the most of yesterday with Gail's family was how comfortable these chairs are. And how do you keep your people awake during the service? So even though we're speaking about rest, remember there's still three pillows in my office. You can always fight over them if you're tired. But as we speak about rest, you know, we want to understand a little bit more about what that means. And we want to dive into that. You know, and when we think about rest um, and we come into our Sundays to worship and to celebrate Uh, our Lord and Savior, we think back on our week. We think about the week that we've had. We think about the work that we were able to get done. And you know, when we look back on this week, it was hard in a lot of ways. We shared grief with some families. Um, Loss is always difficult to go through. It takes up our focus in a lot of different ways. And it makes it a, a little bit more difficult to understand how those principles come about because it gives us a different perspective on life. It helps us to see that end goal in terms of eternal rest a little bit more. You know, last week we explored some definitions of rest and the Sabbath. And we looked at how they're different a little bit, but also how they are tied together. And we focused on the Old Testament texts and we broke down some of the traditions and we challenged some of our own views of the Sabbath and keeping it holy pondering what that means in a New Testament context and how we treat the Sabbath. Afterwards, it was probably some of the longest fellowship that I've been a part of. I think it was 15 minutes before anybody came to me at the door. There was conversations that were happening. There was fellowship that was happening. There was questions. There was Bibles that were opened, and it was all awesome to see. Today we're going to be continuing this breakdown of the Sabbath, but we're going to be looking at it um, from the New Testament texts stemming from Matthew chapter 12. Now Matthew chapter 12 is an identical passage to Luke 6, which we went through a couple of years ago. And this week I went back and I went and listened on the podcast to that message. If you're interested, it was around number 77. You know, I'm one of those people that don't like to listen to my voice on recording. I'm usually flabbergasted when people come to hear me speak because, you know, it's just that thing that happens in your brain. But, you know, in that message I had gone back in the Old Testament texts, kind of similar to what we did last week, and we built up the understanding of the Pharisees in terms of their definitions and understanding of work and watched how that progressed through the Ten Commandments all the way through the prophets and even into some of the intertestamental period. And we looked at how the Pharisees would have approached what Jesus and the disciples were doing. You know, when we looked at 
that passage, it was through the lens of looking at our own interpretations, similar to the way that the Pharisees do, and how our interpretations of Scripture and God's Word can impact us to the point of how we always think that we are right. The same way that the Pharisees thought that they had God's divine will in their back pocket and they could do whatever they wanted with it. Today, as we look at Matthew 12, I want to try and look more towards Jesus' perspective on the Sabbath to give us some instruction of how he views it. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12, and I'm going to read the first 14 verses today. Beginning in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David said when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which, is, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor any those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath, and are guiltless. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, it, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Father, as we go to your word today, just continue to open up our hearts and minds to your truths, to your commands, um, to the holiness of your word. And Lord, as we look at this area in our life, as it compares to rest, and give us the understanding uh, and the truth of your word. In your name I pray, amen. So again, Identical passage to Luke 6. Um, we have two incidences here in this passage that we're going to break down and we're going to try to look at Jesus' view behind them to understand the Sabbath. Uh, some of this will test your retention and your memory from three years ago or so on what the Pharisees' regulations were and seeing if you can recall some of that. You know, from a couple of years ago when we went through Luke, we understood how the Pharisees had these traditions. They had these laws and regulations that they were adding on to the Ten Commandments, adding on to what the law says. And in a lot of ways, this was done to help them understand what work is. Um, they were defining it a little bit more. They were trying to, in essence, control it. They were trying to be Lord of the Sabbath, where everybody had to bow down to what they were saying and what they were doing. So with these regulations, part of those was doing different works, such as harvesting or reaping, or certain distances of travel on the Sabbath. So here, as we open up this chapter, we see how Jesus and the disciples are traveling. 
Now, we don't know how far they're traveling. We don't know if the Pharisees have been following them this whole time, marking down the cubits to make sure that they only go a certain amount of distance within the regulation. We just see that Jesus and the disciples are traveling. And as they're going through, they pull off some of the grain heads um, and they eat that. Now, that, that's allowed to do by the law. Deuteronomy 23, verse 25 says, If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to their standing grain. So generally, this would be along the paths that they're walking, and they would just pick something off of the headlands. Headlands, they don't produce the best crop as it is, and farmers, by the law, would leave 10% in their field for the poor, for the animals. So they were able to just go ahead and pick a little bit and glean from that. The Pharisees see what's happening in front of them and they're indignant about it, right? But they don't go right to the disciples. They go to Jesus and they accuse Jesus because of what his disciples are doing. And they're saying it's unlawful because they're viewing this as harvesting or as reaping. Now, I know you don't have as many wheat fields here in Iowa, but there's been many summers where I've been walking through Wheatfield in Ohio and I've had to pull off the heads of wild onion plants because if those get into your grain, it just takes the value of the grain down. And you'd put them in a bucket and things like that and you'd go through and you would just take a little bit of the grain off and just do this and then pop it in your mouth and then you're able to have a little snack. You're able to chew it and they're like so tiny that it's not much at all. I don't view that as harvesting. Now, if they took a sickle to it and they, they tied it up and they put it on a, a, a tarp or something like that and they were winnowing it with some pitchforks to get the chaff away, that's more of the harvesting. But the Pharisees are looking as this is work. So it's kind of a, a simple charge that's coming against the disciples. And as their representative or their actual target, they go to Jesus and Jesus addresses the main problem that's coming from them, where they're relying too much on their own laws and their own regulations. They were looking towards something called the Mishnah. This is the rabbinical code. So these are all of the rules and regulations added on to the law that come from the rabbis over time. And Jesus comes back to them with scripture because they're holding this rabbinical code over what the word of God says. So Jesus comes back with scripture, and he gives two instances, David and the bread of presence, or the showbread, and then how the priests are doing their duties even on the Sabbath. So within these two passages, um, these two thoughts, it kind of makes you stop and think. It's a classic approach that Jesus takes. We talked about it a little bit last week. It's a classic form of whataboutism. Now, generally, this is me. For me, I don't like whataboutism. It's my confession. Right or wrong, I just don't like it. Because many times when I hear those types of things, I usually assume that the person isn't coming from a good place. Because normally when we have these types of discussions, it's more so who's right. What do you do about this verse? Well, what about this verse? What about that verse? What about this verse? And again, Behind all of that, those types of encounters, it's not always the healthiest environment. It's more so about being right. Now, it absolutely can be a good thing in terms of discipleship and bringing some different things into question. You know, Jesus challenges the Pharisees like this all of the time. He challenges them with the word of God. 
So maybe I need to grow in that and be either a little bit more gentle or a little bit more bold in how I approach those types of things. Because again, when you're in a place of discipleship, when you're dealing with somebody who might be blinded by themselves, may not know what's right or wrong, it, it can be a very useful tool to, be, to allow something to come into their mind and allow the spirit to convict them of what they're going through. But again, many times, that's not how it's being used. It's instead being used as a club. So for the Pharisees, Jesus is simply pointing out passages that they need to give an explanation for that are found in the scriptures, that they are supposed to be proclaiming themselves. Instead, they're going around and they're proclaiming these rabbinical codes, and they're putting heavy burdens on the people. Now, with his response, I want us to see that Jesus is not taking this lightly. You know, it's not like he's not honoring the Sabbath. He's not this big rule breaker. But instead, Jesus understands what the Sabbath is about. In a parallel passage, in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, Jesus says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. You know, Jesus constantly challenges the status quo, and he usually did so and showed them something greater. You know, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's a curious phrase. But it points and it shows the importance of rest, which we talked about last week. The importance of worship and recognizing who God is in our lives. And Jesus is sharing this understanding of the Sabbath, how it was made for people in order that they might rest and rest in him. Now in Matthew 12, in verse 6, he says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And this week I really zeroed in on this phrase. You know, when you're you know, reading a book or you're listening to a podcast or a sermon, there might be something that stands out to you that just catches your eye or catches your attention and then you lose the next five minutes and you don't even realize what was going on because you're dwelling on what was said and you're contemplating that. Happens all the time. But that phrase really stood out to me this week. You know, um, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. For the Pharisees, they're all about that temple life. That was their pride and joy. That's what gave them power. That's what gave them significance and prominence. They lived for that. So much so that they were missing the truth. They were missing so much because they thought of their positions within it. They were thinking of themselves rather than what they were to be about. In our lives, we can see those similarities. We can elevate things higher than they need to be. You have your usual suspects of, of work, money, hobbies, things. Um, but you know, we can also come to church and, and we can come for our friends. We could come to experience this awesome building that we built. The coffee, the fellowship, the music, the pastor, these comfy chairs. <laughs> but I tell you, something greater is here. And that's Jesus. You know, if you're coming for all that other stuff, the chances are you're missing him. I mean, I can come each week and tell you all about Jesus, how cool he is, what he's been doing in my life, how great that is for me. And I, I, can, I can show you all these verses and tell you all about them and sound just like a salesman. 
or the way that we design our service, our worship time, our prayer time, our message, we can introduce you to Jesus to where you have an encounter with him, where you see him in the word, in the music, in the prayer times. You have an encounter with him at the cross where you can experience forgiveness as you confess your sins. You can, and you can see him on the throne as he is the Lord of your life. I never want to be a salesman up here. I want our worship to be authentic and genuine because we understand who he is, that he is the central focus of what we do. We want to dive deeper into the person of who he is so that we can worship him together and find rest in him throughout, throughout our life because that's what his word says. Not because, oh, it's my best life now. Yeah, you'll have your best life now in Jesus. But shooting for the rewards isn't the goal. Shooting for him. Anything short of that is missing the mark. You know, you look back at the examples that Jesus gives. David and the priests. You know, they go, they're serving God first and foremost in their actions. And they're hungry, so they get something to eat. Here the disciples are walking with Jesus. They're serving alongside of him and they're hungry so they, give, so they get something to eat. The disciples are with Jesus who is greater than the temple. Then you compare that to the Pharisees who are worshiping their power and their position within the temple. You know, they have forgotten their first love. They've forgotten who they were to serve and they're instead living for themselves. Many times as we come to church and we just hear about Jesus, we can make ourselves feel better for some brief moments. But then we get back into our week and we get back into sin patterns, we get back into ruts, we get back into patterns and the emphasis is on us. The emphasis is on what we want to do and how God needs to meet our desires because, well, he's God, he should do that for me, right? Instead, we need to dive deeper into humility and what it means to rest in him. Jeremiah 29, verse 13 says, Seek me with all your heart and you will find me. All your heart. Not just a portion of it. Not just that part that says I'm saved and I'm good. All your heart. Verse 7 of Matthew 12, Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's the second time that he references this verse. He does it also in chapter 9, verse 13. And he's pointing out how the Pharisees are so focused on trying to make the right sacrifices to be right with God. So they're trying to, through their works, through their own efforts, be right with God, thinking that they're fulfilling the law. But the law was put in place for our transgressions, as Galatians 3 tells us. The law is there to show us our sin, to show us our need for salvation, to show us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That law is there as a place marker until the Savior comes, who must be received by faith. Many times, when we're thinking about ourselves and our faith, we tend to go back into a works mentality. When we think about how everything should be for us, we get quickly drawn into the same attitudes that the Pharisees lived by. 
The Pharisees taught that the ritual law was just as important as the moral law. They were elevating what they were doing as God's will. Of course, saying that it was right, that it's God's will that we're doing this. So, of course, what we're doing is right. They thought that their hearts were right with God, even though they were constantly looking for ways to validate themselves. I think this shows more so in the second episode that happens with the healing of the hand. And the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus, again, simply points out another thing that they were doing. A common practice that if you saw, sorry, that if you saw one of your animals in trouble, even on the Sabbath, do you help it out? If it's injured, if it's stuck, if it's in trouble, do you work to get it out and to get it free? And of course, that answer was yes. How much more so would you do for a human? Now, Jesus is pointing out that you would much rather help your animal than you would a brother and sister, a fellow Israelite. Because you have all of these people who are demon-possessed, who need healing, and they have needed it for years, yet you have done nothing, Pharisees. You have not done what you needed to, to do. And I think that if you answer, ask that same question in today's culture, where animals and pets are a part of the family, you would definitely get a quick yes. You save that animal, even more so than a human's life. And the main point in Jesus' understanding here is mercy and compassion. It goes back to this Hosea 6-6 verse where Sabbath laws need to be interpreted with mercy rather than strict adherence to the rituals. So his understanding revolves around doing the will of God and he's changing this understanding of work to doing good. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? And then you know how Jesus defines good later in the Gospels. He says only God is good. So his definition of goodness revolves around God and doing God's will. That needs to be our basis. Again, the argument of God's will, uh, both sides of an argument believe that they're doing God's will. But as Jesus uses this verse from Hosea, He's saying that compassion is the better guide to what we're supposed to be doing and what we are supposed to be about. We are to have mercy in our behavior. We are to have mercy in how we respond to others, not necessarily be guided by these rules that are defined by the legal experts because they're just wanting to validate themselves. What is the heart of the passage? You know, the Sabbath is being misinterpreted in a way that's, sets these rigid rules. If we look at our faith as a set of rigid rules, oftentimes we can look to the scriptures for our answers, which is important to do, but again, like we talked about last week, sometimes we're only going to those certain scriptures that uphold what we're already doing versus looking at the whole counsel of scripture. Jesus is teaching the Pharisees that they're overlooking compassion, they're overlooking mercy for their own gain. So we have to ask that same question of ourselves. Is that how we are interpreting the scriptures? You know, it's within this rigidness that I want us to see that the heart of Jesus and some of his perspective really shines. Because Jesus is responding to the burdens that are being placed on the people by the Pharisees. He sees the state of faith that's going on within the people of God and he's not pleased. 
So he's giving them an alternative. He's teaching them with authority. He's been healing many people. He's showing compassion to the outcast, to the least of these. He's showing mercy to the people who are in trouble and in need of help. People have been afflicted for so many years and they have found no rest. The Sabbath was and is to be a day of rest where the people can celebrate and worship the goodness of God. But they have been burdened by the Pharisees in so many ways. Now Jesus has a teaching right before this in Matthew 11 that I want to look at with you. Matthew 11, verse 28. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So in direct comparison, in contrast to what the Pharisees are doing, you see the yoke that Jesus is presenting compared to the burdens of the Pharisees. And he gives an invitation for all those who are weary, who are burdened, to come to him, that there is rest in him. To those who are weary, to those who have struggled long hours and worked hard under oppressive loads, you know, life is oppressive because of sin. Sin bears, us, bears down on us. And it's a burden for us. It's something that the Pharisees are also adding on in terms of their regulations, in terms of the yoke that they're teaching. You know, Matthew chapter 23, verse 2 and 4 says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. You know, we should all practice what we preach. That should be a goal that we have in our life, but even more so leaders. And this is hard because we're humans and we fail. We fall at times. But as we trust in him, as we walk with Jesus, it's more and more evident in our lives the rest that we have in terms of not being burdened by the sins of this world because we're walking in the grace that we've received. You know, God throughout history and the record that we have in the Old Testament has promised his people rest if they trust in him, if they walk in his ways. In Jeremiah 31, verse 25, he says, For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. You know, and, and this promise is coming through Christ. Christ says, come to him. And coming to Christ is not, I've received salvation, so I'm good. It's not just imitating Jesus or learning from his experience and learning about him to improve my life a little bit while still doing what I want to do. Coming to Jesus is an assimilation of what he teaches, where it becomes a part of your identity as his disciple. Jesus' rest is a yoke of wisdom that unites people to himself, and it becomes rest knowing that his provision is completed through salvation. That is our end focus. That is the goal. Discipleship in our life is kept from being this legalistic striving because it is instead a joyous fellowship with him. It's a line that we flirt with often in terms of legalism and just rest. Striving to do more and do more and do more 
versus just rest. Understanding that he has done it all and that I need to be in his word to understand more about him. You know, so many times we come to Jesus for salvation and our faith just stays there. We might come to church and we hear a a message a little bit on a Sunday and just have a brief moment in the word of God and that's all the input that we have for him that week. And that's if you come every week. That's not rest. That's not the type of faith that Jesus desires. After we come to Jesus, we need to be discipled in his word. And we need people to come alongside of us to help us through this life, just as Jesus did for the disciples. You look at the disciples. How long did they walk with Jesus? Three years. When you first became a believer, who walked with you? Who discipled you? Sadly, the answer is no one. Because that's our evangelism technique. Bring them through the doors. Let the professionals teach them. That's our form of evangelism. They're saved, good. On to the next one. And then we read passages about how the older people in the church are supposed to be bringing up the younger people, mentoring them, discipling, walking alongside of them. And we're lost because I don't know what to do. Nobody did that with me, so I'm not sure what I need to do. And generationally, we've lost that influence. There's so many churches in America that are dying because their average age is 80. We're blessed to have a lot of teens and a lot of youth in this church. As adults, it would behoove you to start a relationship with these kids, asking them questions. So for this next four-ish months of youth group, we're going to be going through the Sermon on the Mount. As adults, I suggest you do the same thing. Start studying it, reading it, so that on a Sunday you can ask any one of these teens, hey, what are you learning this week in youth group? Teens, that's going to keep you on your toes. And it gives you an opportunity to tell them what you're learning. You think back what we did a couple years ago in terms of sharing our faith. We, I prepped you guys in youth group for that for three, four months. You guys were the lead on that. Now it's going to be the other way around to where we can inspire some of this intergenerational communication to build each other up as a body in ways that it needs to happen. For those of us that are older that haven't had that discipleship, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that wasn't there for you. But that's not the end of the story. That doesn't mean we can't start tomorrow. Seek the Lord with all your heart and you will find him. Do you want to do that? Are you just, you know, I'm good. There's so much more to Christ than what we proclaim to be our faith, to what we are satisfied with, what we put up with in terms of mediocrity. We elevate so many foolish things the way that the Pharisees did in our lives. And as we get older, we want that time back. We wish things happened. We wish things could be done differently. 
God has given you today. Don't waste it. Don't squander it. You have opportunities to impact other people's lives with the gospel message, with your testimony, with relationship of Jesus. As believers, as professed believers that we all are, you have that ability. You have the spirit of God living within you. He will give you the words to say. It doesn't matter if you're scared to speak out loud in public or anything like that because God can still use you in strong ways to impact other people's lives. Because as we talk about in our prayer requests, people are hurting. People need the Lord in a lot of ways. We need to vent, we need to get some things off of our chest. And we don't have a lot of places to turn because we're a garage door society. Because we're communities that are just isolated. It's right where the enemy wants us. Ineffective. Discipleship is so important because from Jesus' perspective, rest is found in him. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is rest while we're worshiping and praising God. Jesus is the source of that rest. If we're looking for rest outside of that, it's not going to be sufficient. It's going to be entertainment. It's going to be escape. It's going to be numbing the pain. We can only look to Jesus. Only his grace and completed salvation give us the rest that we're desiring to where the troubles and the worries of tomorrow fade away because our hope is in our Savior, because our hope is in the salvation that will, be glor- that will come and we will be glorified with him. If we're focused on doing good and having compassion and mercy for others, it sums up the law and the prophets as Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, and love others as yourself. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to come alongside of each other. We have to help each other through these times. We might not have all of the answers, but we know the one who does. So we need to spend time in the word to seek those out. We need to start seeking the Lord with all of our heart. Not just on Sundays when we have our nice fancy clothes on, but in the trenches, in the warfare where sin is prevalent and the enemy attacks nonstop. It's a battle and we need to be prepared for it. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we continue to dive into your truths, Lord, continue to convict our hearts and minds. Help us to see those areas in life where we're not measuring up, where we're leaning on other things, where we're elevating stuff, where we're not having mercy and compassion but rather wanting our own ways. Lord, for those of us that are just in hard sin patterns, I pray that your spirit can just convict us, that we can know your forgiveness, your healing hand, that we can have that confirmation and affirmation from those who keep us accountable, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we can come together that we can worship you, that we can celebrate your salvation, that we can celebrate the grace that we've received, and that it can be lived out in our lives on a daily basis. 
Lord, we are troubled. We are riddled with fear and anxiety. We're in a nation that is divided and the enemy is just attacking on all sides. In the middle of all this, Lord, we are told that you calm the storm. We are told that we can find rest in you. So Lord, I pray that it wouldn't just be some theological idea, but that we would be able to experience your rest today. That we can rest in the truth as we're trusting in your ways, in your words. That we can rest and believe firmly what you have said. And that fears and anxieties would wash away. That we would live our life convinced fully in the hope that we have in you. And that hope in us would be able to be seen as a light to those around us. We'd be able to share our testimonies. That we'd be able to share who you are. And not just tell people about you, but take people to you. Lord, I thank you for the grace that has been received. I thank you for the offer to come to you and find rest. And I pray through the hardships of life that you would continue to hold us, that you would continue to comfort us, and that you would continue to be firm that your ways are holy and our ways are wicked. Help us to see the truth of that statement. Help us to see your goodness and your mercy. But do not allow us to just think that we only get the benefits. Lord, you, have, you are in the process of changing us into the image of your son. And I just pray more and more that we can lean into that and what that looks like. Help us in the sanctifying process to obey, to trust in you, and to be in your word. Help us to come alongside of each other, to disciple one another in your truths instead of in the ways of this world. Lord, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the cross and the forgiveness of our sins. As unworthy as we are, Lord, we can only humbly bow our heads and praise you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.